Shannon here, and I wanted to let you guys know that You Talk is now on Patreon. When you join our Patreon, you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the podcast, continue the tough conversations about show topics and mental health, and even share your own stories, all while supporting this podcast. As an indie podcaster, your support helps pay for the tools and subscriptions I need to continue to bring you quality content. Thanks in advance for any support you can give, whether it's on Patreon or just sharing with friends. Hope to chat with you soon at patreon.com slash utalk2020. Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. Oftentimes we see someone's outward behaviors and we judge them based on that. But what we don't think about is what is happening inside that person that's spilling over and showing outwardly. My guest this week, Justin B. Long, was an alcoholic with anger issues. But what people may not have seen is the trauma he experienced as a child that led to his anger, alcoholism, and the self-hatred that he felt inside. Justin is an author of several fiction and nonfiction books. He's a business owner and the host of the podcast Straight from the Horse Doctor's Mouth, which he produces with his wife. His mission is to make the world a better place for people by helping men learn to understand themselves and grow into their full potential. His current book, The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy, is a raw, intense examination of his childhood, the traumatic events that formed his negative self-image, and his journey through therapy to overcome it all. Thank you for being here, Justin. Thank you for having me on the show. So I want to go through kind of like the stages of your life that led to this self-loathing that you felt for so many years, and then finally into recovery. So starting with your childhood, what was it like growing up in your household, and what thoughts and emotions did that evoke? Yeah, I grew up in a very emotionally dysfunctional household. Uh, my mom and dad were both victims of trauma in their own way in their childhoods. And this is all stuff I've learned to, in retrospect. So I didn't know any of it at the time. But my dad was a, a rageaholic and a workaholic. And all he knew how to do was was to work and, and be angry. And he, I think he used that as, as sort of a, a, a life ethic in that he worked all day at work. And then he would come home and, and work half the night on projects around the house, whether it was working on the cars, trying to fix them, keep them running, working on the house. You know, it was always a project or three going on. And that extended on to me. So I, from the earliest age that I can remember, I had an extensive chores list. And I think that's fine. There's no problem with, with kids working around the house. But my dad would have all these things for me to do, uh, one of which is, is firewood. I use this example in the book. It was my job to, to chop the firewood and stack it in the rack behind the house. And my dad would come home from work every day 
and we would go around and inspect all of my chores and we would look at the firewood rack and if there was a you know pieces of wood sticking out the front or the back or it wasn't flat all the way across the top i would get a spanking for that and so we would just we would inspect all of my all of my chores for the day and then i would get punished for all of my shortcomings and all those things and i never did it perfect you know it's it's really not possible to do all of those things perfect every day and so every day I would come home from school and work really hard. And then my dad would come home and punish me for all of it. And so what I learned about myself from, you know, single digit years back in the, in the formative years, I learned that no matter how hard I work and how hard I try, it's not going to be good enough. I'm going to, I'm going to fall short. I'm going to get punished. And my mom, you know, I would, I would try to plead my case to my mom a lot because sometimes my mom was my safe place. My mom was my confidant. I could go to her. And, and she would, she would give me the, the support that I needed to help me get through these times. But other times she would, you know, sell me out to my dad. And when my, she would listen to me cry my heart out. And then when my dad would come home, she would tell him how I was complaining about all the stuff and I'd get the double whammy. But I didn't understand then that my dad was not my biological dad. And my mom was trapped in between trying to take care of her son and trying to keep a marriage together that was challenged and had a lot of problems. And so she you know, had split obligations to her husband and to her kid. And so, you know, some days she would go one way, some days she'd go the other. But that that taught me that I couldn't trust my primary caregivers too, that that my mom is is not always going to be a safe place to go. And it's always going to be a gamble to to be honest with the people that that I should trust and love the most. And and over years and years and years of this growing up, it just became a, a a place where I didn't feel like I fit in. I wasn't part of the group. I didn't want to be there because I got punished for everything. And it was, it was endless work and endless punishment and, and also a a really negative emotional environment. You know, my dad's always angry. My mom, you know, neither of them drank, but they took out their, their challenges. My dad through working and anger, my mom through extreme religiosity so she would go through one one thing and then another trying to get God's attention so that he would fix her and solve her problems and change the way that she felt about herself. And I was along for the ride on that stuff too. And so I felt like my parents were crazy, but I was trapped inside the the madhouse and I couldn't get out. And so, you know, I really, I didn't have any emotional tools launching into the world as a teenager and, and trying to find my way in society and in high school. And then as a young adult, I I didn't have any of the tools I needed to be a healthy person. I didn't know how to communicate with other people. I didn't even know how to relate and like have a a solid, healthy relationship as a friend or, or especially I didn't have any, you know, romantic understanding of how to connect with another person. So it really, it was, it was rough. As a young adult, like late teens, early twenties, can you give some examples of how that affected you and like what you were feeling on the inside during those years? As a, as a teenager, I think I was 12 or 13 when I started plotting my, my escape from home. And, uh, and we didn't have a television growing up. That was one of the things that, you know, my parents didn't believe in at the time. And so I, I read a lot of books. Books were my escape from reality. But I learned everything I knew about the world from books. And so, you know, as a probably 12, 13-year-old kid, I started reading a lot of, of army books, of Vietnam stories, and I fell in love with the, the romanticism of, 
of military life where I could go travel the world and see exotic places and do all these things. So, so my, my plan was to join the army the day that I graduated high school, but I had to get there. Right. So I had this, this goal that was going to get me away and solve all of my problems, but I had to get there. And that, you know, when you're young, time is forever, especially years of time. It's like, there's no way I'm ever going to get to this thing. So I had that angst, the, the, the dread of, oh my God, you know, I've got 3000 days I got to get through before I can get to this point. And I can't even get through today. But when I was, when I was 13, I got drunk for the first time and I knew, I knew what I was doing. That's another thing that I had learned from books. I I knew about drinking and how it made people silly and feel good and and do goofy things. And, uh, and I took full advantage of the opportunity that I had to do that. And, and it was great. I loved it. It made me feel okay about me for the first time that I was ever, you know, in, in relatable history. It was the first time I could remember feeling like that. It felt good. And it was about two more years before I got a chance to, to do it again. But by the time I was 15, I was able to drink semi-regularly with, with some friends that I was hanging out with. And that that made me feel plugged in you know that that gave me an escape from my family i i was old enough to to get a vehicle and get away from my family you know for short periods of time and plug into people that accepted me and drink booze that made me feel good about myself and feel like i had a place in the world and i started trying to do that as often as possible but i was still a, a social pariah you know when when you're a a kid with no self-esteem and you're poor and you don't wear the right clothes and you don't have a TV. So you don't know all the pop culture references that everybody else is talking about with TV and movies. And like, I didn't have any of that stuff. So I was, and you know, I just did my best to hold on to a couple of friends that I had. And, you know, I was, I was ashamed of who I was on a level that, that was so deep that, I didn't even realize it was there. You know, I, I just, this is, this is who I am. This is how I feel. And how, how I feel is, is shame. I felt, felt ashamed of my family. I felt ashamed of myself. And, you know, drinking was the only time that I didn't feel that. And by the time I got out of high school, I went straight into the army and I was surrounded by people who drank all the time because the army is a heavy drinking, intense environment. And so, it made me feel normal. Like I, I drink all the time because it makes me feel good. Everybody around me is drinking all the time. So this is, this is what being a grown up is. You know, my parents were doing it all wrong. This is how we live. And, you know, while I was drinking, I could feel good about myself, but the problem is you can't drink 24 seven. And in the waking moments when I'm sober, I'm at work, I'm at school, whatever. Like I still feel horrible about who I am. And the, like it became like, two different lives that I was living at the same time. And all the time that I was in the one, I wanted to be in the other. And I could never, you know, marry those feelings together. And, you know, the more I drank and the more I drank around other people, the more I started doing ridiculous things to get attention and affection from people. And, you know, and then when I would be sober the next day, I would, I would feel more shame because I'm embarrassed about what I did last night. And one of the the things, the habits that I, I formed early on, you know, when I got into the army and got out on my own was that, you know, I, I started associating the idea of sex with acceptance. And, and so I would pursue any woman around me that, that would give me any kind of attention because it made me feel accepted and, 
and I never got that because, you know, I was emotionally dysfunctional and I didn't bring anything to the table from my side, but, but I tried really, really, really hard. And, you know, everybody knows somebody who tries way too hard to be, to be liked and to be funny and to, you know, it's over the top with everything. And, and that was, that was who I was. And I couldn't understand how, you know, my behavior was driving people away from me when I'm, I'm throwing all of the, the love and joy and fun and happy, excited, funny stuff that I have at them, you know, all the affection that I have to give to, to somebody, tell them how amazing they are and all this stuff. I didn't understand why that would drive somebody away, but it was because I had no self-awareness. I couldn't, I couldn't see me and how I was coming across to people, but but the way that I felt on the inside was still, you know, glaringly obvious to everybody else. Even when I felt like I felt good about myself in that moment, in the overall, my understanding of who I was was still very negative. Where does the anger come in? I think the anger is the sense of of being helpless. Like all of my childhood, I, I was helpless. I was stuck where I was. I could... I could see that, you know, the kids around me weren't experiencing the same sort of things that I was experiencing. You know, the, the, the buddies that I had when I was young that, you know, lived in the neighborhood, when I would go hang out at their house, their dads didn't act like my dad did. And I just, I begin to feel like the, a, a victim of an injustice. Like my dad is, is screwing me over with, with his system. And, you know, life is screwing me over because I, you know, especially in high school, I, I was angry with my physique because I was six foot two and I weighed 120 pounds. So I was, you know, tall and skinny like a stork. And, you know, I just, I felt like no matter what I did, I, I was smart and I was capable and I could not catch two seconds of a break to be able to, to grow into that and, and have somebody see my potential and, and give me a chance to be who I really am. And I felt, I felt judged because of all of that stuff. And, and stepped on and put, pushed into a corner and just, it made me angry. Like I was mad even in, into adult life in the working world. I was an overachiever. So I would try to work harder than everybody else and prove myself all day, every day. And, and nobody ever gave me the acknowledgement that I, that I needed so bad to tell me that, yeah, Justin, you are okay. You're doing a good job. And that's, that was amazing. Whatever. Like I, I could not get that. But what I didn't understand is that, that I wasn't giving that to myself either. Like I was keeping myself down probably more than everybody else by the time I was an adult because it was the only way I knew how to be. What was it that made you say, I can't do this anymore? I think that in my 20s, once I, I made it through the army and, and out into civilian world and started getting to know some people, I started trying to become the people that I admired. And, you know, I looked at the guys who looked like they were making it, the guys who had the women flocking to them or had the, the cool motorcycle or, or whatever that looked tough, like nobody ever messed with those guys. And I started trying to, to emulate those people. And that's not who I am. You know, I, I was throwing myself away and putting on mask after mask after mask, trying to become the person that everybody would respect and, and accept and all of the things. And the, the longer I did that and the more layers I put on, the farther I got from, from who I really am. 
And I think the, the disparity between how I felt on the inside and who I was trying to be on the outside got so big that nothing that I could do could support that anymore. And, you know, drinking didn't work anymore. I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have any tools to, to maintain it. And I was so miserable and I hated myself and I hated the lie that I was living. I was in a relationship that I didn't want to be in. I was, I was in a job that I, I headbutted with the, the boss all day, every day, like everywhere I turned, it was, it was negativity. It was bad. And there was no escape from it. And, you know, you can only be miserable like that for so long before you either make a change or you kill yourself and killing myself became more and more of an option. And again, you know, that, that would make me angry because I know that I'm capable of more than this. I've got the capacity to, to do, you know, all kinds of stuff, but I just like, I need help and I don't know how to get there. And, and so I didn't, I didn't want to kill myself. I wanted to live, but I wanted things to be different. And I wasn't sure if they, if they could be, but, um, I finally got to the point where I was willing to seek help. And I went to a 12 step meeting, not knowing what to expect. I had no idea. And I had no intention of, of not drinking anymore either, but I needed to find a way to get the shame under control and the self-loathing under control. And I felt like those were starting to become tied to my drinking. And, uh, and so I went to a 12 step meeting and that's when my education really started. That's when my life made a hard right turn. And I, I, you know, despite being smart at 32 years old, I didn't know anything. You know, I had the, I had the capacity to process information, but I had zero life experience with, with doing anything other than what I had done. And, uh, which was very little, you know, I did the same thing over and over for 32 years, expecting different results. And, and, and so I, I had very limited experience and limited knowledge, but, but when I got into a 12 step program and met people who felt like I felt and talked about that, you know, that was, that was one of my big problems is that, you know, especially men, I think in, in, in American culture, it's not okay for us to talk about feeling poorly about ourselves. It's not okay for a guy to not be tough or to, to not have, you know, all the answers and, and be self-reliant and know how to do all the things like no, no group of guys stands around talking about, you know, I don't like myself very much. You know, I'm really ashamed of how I behave every Friday night. And, and I don't like that feeling like we don't talk about that. So I spent all my adult life comparing my insides to everybody else's outsides and feeling like there's something wrong with me. You know, nobody else is, nobody else is like this. And when I got to that 12 step meeting, I found out there's lots of other people like that and they're actually willing to talk about it. And that made me feel understood. I finally found a place where people knew exactly what I was feeling on the inside. I didn't even have to explain it. I just listened to them talk. I was like, man, you know, and then they talked about how they were able to change that. And that gave me hope. And I don't think I'd ever had hope. And, you know, I, everything, everything in my life changed at that point. You started going to the 12 step program. Did you get into counseling? It took a long time. Um, I had a lot of cemented beliefs that I had to uncement and, and become willing to, uh, to change the way that I, I think about things. And so it took me, I think, probably six years between going to that first 12-step meeting 
I quit drinking immediately, but it took me six years to, to learn enough about myself and about the belief system that I have to, to understand that maybe I was wrong about a lot of things. And, you know, that started with a guy named Roland who sponsored me. And I think I was two years, little over two years sober when I met him, but he helped me examine my beliefs about all kinds of stuff and, and why I believe them. And I realized that almost everything I believe is something that I inherited from my parents. And, you know, my dad, despite the fact that, that I hated him and I felt like he was wrong about everything, I still wound up believing everything that he believed because it, I never questioned any of that stuff. Right. And so much of it just becomes automatic and even simple stuff like, you know, how, how do you like a steak? Um, and we only had steak a couple of times when I was a kid, but when we did it, my dad burned them to a crisp. He says, you know, a good steak is burned to a crisp and by God, that's how I like it too. And so I never questioned that. And when I was like 35 years old, I've, I've went to a steakhouse and somebody talked me into having a medium rare steak. And it was amazing. I was like, Oh my God, what, how, how have I been so wrong about this? But you know, that's, that's, and it was that, that small. And then all the way up to what I think about people who don't look like I look or people who have a different sexual orientation than I do, or people who don't speak the same language that I do. And, you know, my political stances on everything, like all of this stuff were unconscious beliefs that I held that when I examined them one by one, I realized I don't believe any of this stuff. And this is just more stuff that I'm carrying around. That's, that is, you know, not who I am at all. And so Roland helped me learn how to identify these things and how to change them one at a time and, and really start living an intentional life on and figure out who I am and who it is that I'm trying to become and to, and to shed all the baggage. And it took probably four years of that before I got to the point of, of changing my mind about counseling and, and that, that a, a strong self-reliant man can go to counseling and get some good stuff out of that. And, uh, and once I finally got over that hurdle, you know, my, my growth went into fast forward. That's, that's when, you know, a, a real professional got a hold of me and I was able to come into it with an open mind and a willingness to grow and change. And I exploded. Like everything got amazing at that point. I can only imagine how it feels to think, you know, all this stuff and then you experience the real world. And it's like everything you thought you knew is just flipped. It's crazy. I didn't trust myself for a while. When I started on this process of realizing that a lot of my beliefs are, are wrong, I was afraid to believe anything that popped into my head without taking a minute to examine it, especially if I'm in a conversation with somebody and we're debating about something like, before I defend this position, you know, is this something that I've gone over? Do I actually believe this? Or is this some crap that my dad inherited from his dad that nobody's ever examined for 30 generations in our family? And it's you know, it's not true at all. And I got through that. And then I got to the point of embracing the idea that I'm probably wrong and that I'm, I'm going to examine all this other stuff and, and just keep, keep going on this journey because the more of those things that I examine and reject and replace with stuff that I really believe in, the better I feel about who I am. And the more of those things that I understand and believe to be true the more confident I can be in, in the way that I act, the way that I treat other people, the way that I treat myself. So much of that is built on my sense of, of understanding of who I am and, and what the world is all about. 
and what what my role is in that. And when I was confused about all that stuff and and trying to live somebody else's life, you know, of course it didn't work, and it, and I was miserable because none. I was swimming upstream in a river that I wasn't even supposed to be in. And so when I got in my lane and started going the right direction and and doing what I believe is right, everything got so much easier and and the quality of life just improved so much. And I'm at a point now where I just embrace the the idea of change. Like change has is, is been really good for me. And every every major change that I've made in my life has has made me a better person. So and I was probably the most anti-change person in the world when I started all this, right? Like most people are, we get rooted in, in routine and we don't like to change anything. But, but this process for me has, has become all about embracing change because change is good. Is that what you would say is the silver lining of your whole life story and the stuff that you went through as a child? Oh man, there's, there's a, a lot of silver linings. I think, um, perspective is a big one for me. Like if I hadn't experienced any, any bad stuff, I don't think I would have any perspective on things. Right. So, so I feel like I have a much broader appreciation for everything that I have in my life today. Like my wife, I have an amazing wife who I met way into this process. So she didn't ever know me back then, which is good. But you know, the, the things that, that I'm involved in today, the, the things that I do, the activities that I have, the job that I have, like all of this stuff, I, I wouldn't have any way to appreciate if, if I didn't go through every step that I went through in my life. But I also think that self-awareness as a lifestyle is, has been critically important for me to, to appreciate anything for, for me to have any understanding of of life and the world and society and and the problems that we have and the great things that we have like it's all predicated on me understanding who I am and and where I stand on all this stuff what would you say to those who have experienced some similar things or are going through something similar to what you've been through i would say a lot um number 1 is that no matter what you have gone through, what you are going through, where you were at, you can, you can feel differently about yourself. It is possible to change almost everything. I think I have changed so much of my self-beliefs and, and like the more I do that, the more I learn how everything else in my life is built on the way that I feel about myself. And so understanding that the, the circumstances might suck and the current situation might, might be horrible and the self-beliefs might be horrible, but all of that can change. Like none of this is cast in stone and it's never the end. And I think the key to all that is being willing to change your mind about everything that you believe and being willing to do things differently and doing things differently can be little stuff from, you know, what we, what we consume and, whether that's food or, or television or media or whatever, all the way to the big stuff, like who we live with and, and who we share our lives with and, and where, you know, geographically all that takes place. You know, sometimes, you know, for me, I, I needed to keep a thousand mile buffer between me and my family. So they're in Oklahoma. I, I'm, I'm in Florida and that has worked out really well. And I don't hold any obligations to anyone. You know, no one can obligate me to anything or anyone except for me. And that was a belief that it took me a long time to form. 
And I think that once I was able to shake those familial obligations that I put upon myself, that I don't owe my parents anything. I don't owe them a phone call. I don't owe them money. I don't owe them part of my life. And if I choose to to share that with them at some point, it will be because I want to, not because I feel like I'm supposed to because we're related, right? So I think being able to change those beliefs and and knowing that with help, sometimes professional help, sometimes not, but being willing to to get help when it's needed to help me find my way through these things that I can change my my situation no matter what it is. And anyone else can too. Justin, as I mentioned before, you've written several books, one in particular called The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy. What's in that book and where can we find it? That book is the, my journey through therapy. I've, I've gone through therapy a couple of times, but the most recent one was the most dramatic for me. And I went through trauma therapy and we used a process called EMDR, which I won't even try to explain, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazingly effective at changing the feelings that we have tied to, to our memories. You know, when I when I went through this process, my therapist took me back to like the wood pile that we talked about, for example. And you know, we would stand beside seven year old Justin who's in front of the wood pile and his dad standing there with the paddle and and try to get an adult perspective on what's happening in this situation. And seven year old Justin believes that he can't get the firewood stack straight no matter what he does. And forty five year old Justin understands that seven-year-old Justin did a a great job stacking firewood and the house got heated and everything was as it should be. And the only thing wrong with that situation was the dad who didn't know how to be a dad. And, you know, we went through situation after situation like that. Like my, one of my mom's moves was to, because she wasn't a disciplinarian that she would make me drag in the big trash can from out back and sit inside the trash can until my dad got home to spank me when I was bad. And so, you know, when I'm sitting in that trash can, I form beliefs about myself that, you know, I can't keep my mouth shut. I'm not, you know, I, no matter what I do, I, I end up in trouble. And, uh, and I would be beaten up on myself until my dad got home to whip me for whatever it was that I did. And I can look at that with my therapist and my adult perspective and understand that, you know, there was nothing wrong with the kid in the trash can. It's the, it's the woman that put him in there that's, that's wrong and has got the problems. And, and when I, change the way that I feel about myself at those ages and and in those situations. And and I realized that I did all the things that I needed to do and there was never anything wrong with me. It was, there was something wrong with my parents. Then I changed my, my feeling about who I am as a child. And, you know, when I look back over my history, I don't, I don't look back on it with shame anymore about, you know, the failure I look back on it with pride that, you know, I did all of those things. I made it through all those situations despite having the deck stacked against me. And I overcame all that. And and I'm, you know, I'm doing great. That I, I am an, an achiever. I can do all this stuff. I can do whatever I set my mind to. And so the book is my journey through that. And and when I, you know, it started out as a journal. And when I realized that while my circumstances were mine, the the beliefs that I formed about myself and the insecurities that I formed are the same as everybody else has. And the process that I went through to, to resolve those things and overcome them is the same for everybody. And I really, I wanted to share that with the world. And so you can find that uh, it's at Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and any online book retailers, but you can find links to all of those places on my website at jboydlong.com. 
for me, I think it's it's a it's a social proof that anything that has happened to you, you can overcome it and change your beliefs about yourself. That's amazing. I'm going to put those links in the show notes, but how can we follow you on social media? Uh, also at my website, I've got links to, to my Facebook and my Instagram, but I am at J Boyd Long everywhere there is. Justin, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate your insight and your perspective, and I hope that it makes someone think about their life or the struggles that even someone that they love might be facing. And also, thank you for your service. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you about this and kind of get the word out there. I think it's it's important for people to understand that the negativity is not a place that you have to be. Thank you. Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. Enjoy what you heard today? Help us get the word out. Give You Talk a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You might find your review reposted on our social media. Thanks for listening. The mic drops next. As children, we don't understand the grown-up problems that our parents are facing while they're trying to raise us the best way they know how. Justin's parents were trying to figure out life. They had their own issues dealing with the trauma that they experienced that resulted in trauma for their son. Justin learned several things as a child that shaped his view of himself and people, like no matter how hard I work, I'll never be good enough. And if I can't trust my mom, I can't trust anyone. His childhood left him with little to no relationship or communication skills. But the most used coping mechanism he learned was to escape. He tried to escape by reading. He tried to escape by drinking. He tried to escape by joining the army. He tried to escape who he was by trying to be like someone else that he thought he wanted to be. After all of his attempts to escape, he realized he was still miserable and he could not go on living this way. Though he didn't know where to start, he knew that he had so much potential. And a 12-step program became the start of healing and change in his life. From listening to Justin tell his story, it seems that there were several factors that played a major role in changing the trajectory of his life and breaking a trauma cycle that existed within his family. Number one, listening to other people who had similar experiences. When you're going through things, you often feel isolated. But even to hear that other people are going through things as well can make a person feel like he or she is quote-unquote normal. And that is one of the biggest things I hope this podcast does for those who listen. Number two is counseling. Counseling helped him deal with his feelings and self-doubt. It helped him have a better understanding of the trauma and its effects on him. He realized that people and circumstances can change. 
and he embraced change in his life. And the third thing is self-exploration. One of the things that really struck me was when he said, I was swimming upstream in a river that I wasn't even supposed to be in. He was trying to be what he wasn't designed to be. And his life became easier just from realizing that he just needed to be the perfectly imperfect human being that God created him to be. The process of exploration made him question his beliefs and many times change them. So the moral of this story is, change is good. Embrace it in all aspects of your life. And men, it's okay to be vulnerable. You might find healing. Thanks for joining me for another episode of You Talk, I'll Listen. If you want to talk about what you heard, join our exclusive community on Patreon at patreon.com slash utalk2020. You might even get a shout out on social media or a future episode of You Talk. Next Monday, tune in for a preview of episode two. Grace and blessings. Blessings.